Welcome, everybody, to Roger's List. This is the podcast where we are watching every single one of Roger Ebert's great movies. I am Steve Gunley, and I want to be a gentleman, I do. My guest today... <laughs> terrible accent. Uh, my guest today is a podcaster and a writer. You know her from uh, the Monkey Off My Backlog podcast and as a contributor to Pop Culturist. Uh, she also told me before recording that she has a young man with her who has a secret way of getting at a boy's kidneys, and I have to bring her back like a file and some whittles next time we podcast together. So I don't know. We'll see how that plays out. But Tessa Suila is here. Hi, Tessa. Hello. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you so much for being here. I'm, I'm excited. Uh, this is a movie that neither of us have seen. Yeah. Well, we have now, I guess. Yeah, technically. But you know. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I as I was telling you before we started recording, I had no idea that there was this early of a version of Great Expectations. So yeah. I was really excited when you told me about it. I'm glad. No, I'm really glad to have you. Uh, Tess is a PhD candidate. You know quite a bit about uh, uh, literature and everything like that, where I am, a, you know, I'm a little bit of a dummy when it comes to that. I, I have read quite a bit of Dickens. I've read Great Expectations. It's been about 20 years, but I've read it. And uh, I don't know, I really like Dickens a lot, but I'm excited to dig into it. Yeah, I will. Uh, I will definitely say 19th century Brit lit is not my area of specialty. It's been a no. while since I've studied it. Um, but I will say my father's favorite author is Dickens. So oh, wow. I grew up with a lot of Dickens at my house. Although Great Expectations was his least favorite Dickens. And oh, really? Yeah. So he and a family friend of ours used to get into arguments about whether Great Expectations was the best or not. So I definitely have a lot of different conversations happening in my head while I was watching this movie. But it's it's definitely a text I'm familiar with. I'm familiar with the author. So I, I'm excited to talk about it. Out of curiosity, what does your dad consider the best Dickens novel? He loves Tale of Two Cities. That's Tale his of Two favorite. Cities. Okay, okay. And all right, all right. Interesting hot take. I like that. Like, I, I feel like if I'm racking my brain, I think I've read like three or four, so I'm not the most well-versed, but I, I think this is my favorite of the three or four that I've read. But uh, It's definitely know. a very different one for him. Like, it definitely breaks a lot of those Dickens, the, the things that we expect Dickens to do in his in his stories. It's a lot more gothic, which I'm sure we'll talk about, because there's a lot yeah. of that imagery in this so film. So many moors, so much fog over moors. Yeah. yeah, and then, you know, mansions and... Yeah, so it's it's definitely a very different Dickens novel. So if you go into this expecting Oliver Twist, I feel like you'll be disappointed. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I uh, in researching this episode, I learned the new word, uh, and I'm probably gonna butcher it, but Bildungsroman, which is a literary term for coming of age story or like something like that. Yeah. So this is this is kind of considered one of those for Dickens, and I apologize to our German listeners who uh, heard me try and butcher that word. Um, but yes, we are talking today about Great Expectations, the 1946 version directed by David Lean. I, I will admit I, I had a little bit of a hard time like getting myself super enthused about this episode just because we've covered a few like literary adaptations at this point and they've all been good. But it, uh, after a certain point, you're just like, OK, well, this is this is an older British movie. It's going to be stodgy. It's going to be like strict to the text and just kind of stiff. And uh, so I was having a little trouble work psyching myself up to watch it. And I was delighted to find out how weird this movie is and what strange choices it makes and like what kind of uh, fan like fantastic little digressions it goes off on. 
Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think part of it is, uh, and again, we were talking about this a little before the podcast started. We, there's just so many remakes of 19th century British texts that it's really hard for a text like Great Expectations that has probably more than a dozen. I, I have not looked this up, so don't fact check me on this, but <laughs> probably more than a dozen adaptations at this point. And so it's oh, really, yeah. it's really, really hard for an adaptation, I think, to stick out as being something that's, you know, d- interesting and different and has iconic imagery because it's sort of swamped with all these other adaptations as well. This one definitely stuck out to me, though, um, which was surprising. Again, I was also expecting something a little bit more staid, I guess, or cliched. Yeah. But it, it the first scene grabbed me at, right at the beginning and it never let go, really. Yeah, and I mean, even like... Even having David Lean, it's like, and I know he's an exciting, like, interesting filmmaker, but even then I'm just like, well, this is early David Lean. He was still, you know, very stiff upper lip uh, British type, and, like, you're not really sure what's going to come out of it. But I almost found this movie to be, like, it's almost like a comic book adaptation of the Dickens novel, like, in some of the big, weird choices that they make. But let's let's get a little bit of uh, backstory on all this before we get started so great expectations was released december 26 1946 like we said it is directed by david lean and it stars john mills anthony wagner gene simmons valerie hobson marticia hunt finley curry and alec guinness and this is available if you want to watch it on hbo max right now and i think you can rent it on prime as well um so a little bit about david lean this is the first of many times we're going to talk about him he is arguably the greatest British filmmaker of all time. I think you could really make that claim. Uh, he had a knack for combining this kind of classical, sort of stiff upper lip English stoicism with a grand spectacle, you know? And he he really uh, had a good knack for that. So he was born in Surrey in 1908 to an upper middle class family. He attended Oxford and he was working as an account clerk at his father's firm when he realized that he was he wanted to pursue a career in film. So he got some work as a film editor. He edited more than a dozen different movies before he finally got to step behind the camera on his own. He directed four movies. First four movies were adaptations of Noel Coward plays. Um, The last of which is a movie called Brief Encounter. And that's the movie that kind of introduced him to the world stage because that went on to win the Palme d'Or at Cannes. And it's personally maybe my favorite movie of his that I've seen. I don't know. I think it's a beautiful film. Um, but yeah, that that really caught the world's attention and people wanted to see what he could do. And his first follow-up movie was today's movie, Great Expectations, which went on to get an Oscar nomination for Best Picture. And uh, that, that kind of sent him off from there. So he had a very productive 50s, like working in England, and then he finally emigrated over to the States. His first movie there was Bridge on the River Kwai, which won Best Picture, won Best Actor, won a whole bunch of other awards, was a huge hit. And then he followed that up with just a ridiculous string of epics. So we had uh, Dr. Zhivago and Lawrence of Arabia and Ryan's Daughter and A Passage to India. All of those came right after that. So huge, huge. Like, if you think of the word cinematic, you're thinking of these David Lean movies. Like, they're bigger than life and they're beautiful and really interesting to watch. And they always take about six, seven hours to get through. Only a slight exaggeration. Um so yeah, uh, uh, in all, uh, David Lean directed 17 films in his career. He won the Best Director Oscar twice, and he died in 1991 at the age of 83. As far as his personal life, uh, a little bit more tumultuous than what you might expect. Uh, he was a notorious womanizer, was married and divorced six times, 
and could be pretty difficult to work with from uh, the, especially with women. Apparently, this is another one of those great male filmmakers who just has no idea how to talk to women or direct women. Uh, Valerie Hobson, who played the older Estella in this movie, said that he, it was a miserable experience filming with him because he was always very cold to her. He didn't really give her any kind of direction or give her anything. But in the meantime, he and Alec Guinness were just like buddy-buddy chumming it up the entire time. They went on to make six more movies together. So, you know, sexism. I think you can kind of tell in this movie. I mean, the the story itself definitely isn't always favorable towards women, but there were definitely times in this movie that I thought, like, the female parts are not being given as much to do here as some of the the male actors. Uh, That's definitely something that stuck out to me. I feel like the adaptation that I think of when I think of this book is uh, the 1998 Alfonso Cuaron film with Ethan Hawke and Gwyneth Paltrow. And they kind of recast the entire story into a modern day. And that story or that film put a much bigger emphasis on the romantic subplot than I think this one does. This one seems much more interested in the convict element of it. And uh, there are a lot of like big cuts that had to be made to the story to fit it into a two hour movie. Uh, so they did make some make some judicious edits here and there. But yeah, this one does seem a little chillier than that. And as such, like it was pretty noticeable, like Valerie Hobson. Uh, it, she doesn't give a bad performance, but it's clear that she doesn't really have a whole lot of direction about how she's supposed to think or feel about what Estella is going through. And I actually want to talk about the character of Estella and really all these characters. I mean, all these characters are just amazing and timeless and like really rich and interesting in their own little ways. But Estella has always been a little bit stymieing for me because, like, this is one of those characters that I think you have an equal claim that this is, like, a very feminist hero or a very anti-feminist hero. Like, I think you have equal claim to both arguments. I was curious what you thought about Estella and her role. So the the role of Estella in both the novel and in the, the film, this fr- this particular film version, is like you said she's very the premise of her is very intriguing because she's this person who has been raised uh by Miss Haversham which I'm sure we will talk about oh yeah to basically make men's lives miserable and that's such an intriguing idea like somebody being raised to like wreak havoc on an entire gender right but but we're never given any like concrete information in either the novel or this movie as to what that actually looks like she just seems to be kind of castigated for being cold towards pip like there's this whole idea that like uh well she's she's not a good person because she refuses to let pip out of the friend zone which is which is kind of troublesome right Yeah. yeah that's really that's really really troublesome and then of course at the end we get this like sort of slapped together romance ending which I think is has more to do with the time that this film was released than actually I I don't think it was signaled very well in the film um necessarily like they do a lot with Pip being in love with her but her character does not seem to be that interested in Pip at all and so that's why this the ending seems kind of strange to me the the novel ends in a much more subdued way um like you're led to believe that they're going to go off together but you're, it's not the same kind of like music swelling, you know. They they kiss at the end. He rips all the windows off the, right, the shutters right. off the windows. You know, it's not quite that that dramatic of a of an ending in the in the novel. So, I, you know, I, to me, it can go either way because yeah, it's it's such an interesting idea. But I don't know if either Dickens or this film really stick the landing with the character. 
Well, no, not really, because they don't seem to be particularly interested in her internal life. Like this idea of like a child being used as an emotional weapon is a really interesting idea. But I feel like the shallow reading on this, which a lot of people have kind of come up with, is just that, oh, oh, it's it's this stereotype of the man eater of like this uh, this relentless heartbreaker who just wants to go out to destroy the male sex. And I agree. I, I don't think uh, I don't think this adaptation in particular is very kind or very interested in Estella uh, as much as the other things. I'm not I'm not trying to rip on the movie too much, but, you know, it, I think that is a failing that it has. And that's a failing of the time as well. Right. And uh, there's really like you mentioned, there's really two threads in this film. There's the and, and they're intersecting tr- threads, but they're separate for most of the film there's the the convict thread which you Mm -hmm. mentioned and then there's the miss haversham estella thread and they don't really come together until the end of the film but it's it's very clear which one david lean is more interested in the despite the fact that miss haversham has some of the best set pieces in the film yeah the, the actual story seems more invested in the pip's relationship to money and pip's relationship to the convict yeah and status yeah for sure like he's definitely more obsessed with his status as a and I, I still was not clear on what exactly being a gentleman entails in this world it seems like he kind of just gets paid 500 pounds a year just to hang out and be fancy <laughs> which you know good work if you can get it i mean yeah that, that's, that's great. what gentlemen were though i mean it was a status yeah. symbol to not have to work yeah, and yeah. to just be you know it, it was it was all of this new money trying to to ape the the manners and the idleness, I guess, of the nobility. So it was all these people sure. trying to to trying to basically say they didn't have to work, that they could live off of the income of other people, which is what Pip is doing, really. And it's it, it is just it's really interesting to me because anytime you talk about Dickens or any Dickens adaptation, you have to talk about class. And yes. that is obviously a huge element of this particular film. You get it, you know, from you know, Pip's sort of rise to gentlemen. Uh, he has great expectations, which when I was a kid, I had no idea what that meant. I was like, what is it? Like, like, <laughs> is it like Christmas? Like, you just, ex- yeah. you're like, you, there's something that's going to happen that's really cool. But no, I mean, he, the idea is, is that he's going to take his place in society, that he can learn how to, how to talk to people. He can learn how to uh, look like other gentlemen. You know, he can spend money, which is the other I think part of this is that he learns how to spend a lot of money. Yeah, Uh, yeah. uh, But like, you know, we still get like Joe, the the blacksmith who raises him. And, you know, there's the contrast there. And then there's, you know, his gentleman friends. We get Herbert Pocket, which has got to be one of the best Dickens names ever. Oh, my God. (laughs) I am in love with Dickens names just in general. Like they're always they always just crack me up. I think if it's not uh, if it's not Herbert Pocket, then it's definitely Mr. Pumblechook <laughs> or Uncle P- Uncle Pumblechook. Excuse me. I mean, come on, like those are insane. That's- and like, yeah, I was reading about that. Like his names aren't just like funny sounds too, which I always just kind of assumed. I thought he just wanted to do like funny sounds to kind of give a satirical edge to some of these characters, but it's kind of meant to indicate like. All right, so pumble was British slang at the time for pummeling for beating someone up. And then chook is kind of like a, 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 a bastardization of choke, meaning that this guy is fat. He eats so much that he chokes on his food and you want to pummel him. Like every character's name actually tells you a little bit about their personality in an interesting way. So I don't know. Yeah. I just love that. 
And I always like it. He does this once in Great Expectations, but he does it more in other novels as well, where he will there will be a character that isn't called by a name they're called by like a description so like the aged parent is the one that yeah. shows up in the in the film and like we have no idea what his name is he's just referred to by his son as the aged parent or ap and it's just yeah. it's great <laughs> like it just those little those little uh humorous asides are just so dickens I'm going to try calling my dad that and see how that goes over. I'm going to see say, how that goes. <laughs> hello, hello, Agent P. He's like, what? What the fuck? Um, a little bit about Great Expectations, the book. Uh, so Dickens wrote the novel in 1861. It was his second to last like, fully published novel, uh, if you don't count Mystery of Edwin Drood, which he never actually finished. Um, like most Dickens novels, it was published in serial form. So at this time, it was published during Dickens' uh, own newsletter, which was called All the Year Round. And I think this movie has inspired more adaptations than any Dickens story except for maybe uh, A Christmas Carol. Like, this one has been done a lot. Like, the first adaptation came out in 1917, and it's completely lost as of now, so we can't find it anymore. But there was also a Dutch adaptation in 1922 and an English version in 1936 that came out before Lean's version. And then after that, it was made for TV over and over again in, (gasps) excuse me, 1954, 1959, 1967, 1974, 1981, 1983, 1989, 1999, and 2011. Holy shit, that's a lot of TV. Wow, I had no idea. Yeah, Uh, the 1989 one was a Disney Channel one that's got uh, Anthony Hopkins playing uh, 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 Magwitch, which... Sounds kind of fun. I, I was going to say, that sounds terrifying, actually. <laughs> yeah. And Gene Simmons, who plays the young Miss Havisham in this, plays old Miss Havisham in that. So oh, that's kind of cool. That okay. one might be worth checking out. Uh, there were two other noteworthy adaptations. We already talked about Alfonso Cuaron's 1998 version uh, with Ethan Hawke. And there was another one in 2013 with Ray Fiennes that was uh, a little bit more straight up, like classic Dickensian. Uh, this has also been adapted onto the stage many, many times, uh, including a successful musical. So I don't really know what Great Expectations the musical looks like, but it's out there. It exists. Check it out. It doesn't seem like it would uh, it would become a musical as easily as perhaps like Oliver Twist or something right. that ends a little bit happier, I guess. It doesn't have know. anything as, as punchy as like child labor, you know. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, yeah or, you, you know, know, workhouses or, you know. <laughs> That kind of thing. I I think that Dickens, at the time Dickens was, I I think sometimes we forget that Dickens was as popular as any writer has ever been during his lifetime. Like people loved him, especially poor people because they saw themselves represented in his work. And so you were, you mentioned that he published via serial, which I do think affects the structure of this story. The fact that it was published in chapters over a, it's very episodic. Yeah. Over a period of time. And there were groups of poor, like poor families who would get together and like buy one copy and like read it aloud and pass it along. And Wow. The the only modern author that I can think of that has this level of fame right now would probably be Stephen King, actually. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it's sort of a similar, like, people people just could not wait for that next, you know, that next part of the story. So I, I think that there's a lot to be said here about, you know, even though this is a film adaptation, even though David Lean is doing something quite David Lean with it, there, yeah. the Dickens... Dickens' shadow is definitely all over this film. Oh, 100%. And the Stephen King comparison is apt, too, because I feel like when he started, 
he was just kind of dismissed as like for the unwashed masses. And now, like, as we get later and later into his career, his work is being evaluated more seriously. So that's I think that's a, a perfect comparison for that. Uh, one other little addition that this uh, this movie and this book inspired was an episode of South Park uh, from <laughs> season four. Did you, have you seen this episode? I have not. No, please tell oh, me my about God. it. OK, season four. The episode is called Pip. All right, and the character of Pip was like a, a supporting role that they introduced in season one on South Park. And he's literally taken straight from great expectations. Like his first line of dialogue in the show is like, well, with my family name being Pirip and my first name Philip, like he was explaining it, like that whole thing. And so in season four, they just decided to do an episode they called South Park Classics. They brought in Malcolm McDowell uh, in real life to play, quote unquote, a British person. And he narrated the story. And... Watching it now, like when I was watching this movie, like it felt very, very familiar, even though I hadn't seen it. And that's because of this South Park episode where they take the exact character models that match the actors in this movie. They have the same cadence. The whole speech with like pocket explaining manners is like almost verbatim in the show, like with a little Alec Guinness, like child uh, uh, avatar. Obviously, it changes by the end of the episode because Miss Havisham has like a machine and she's trying to suck the youth out of everybody and they have to <laughs> kill her. And it turns out she's a cyborg. So it gets it, it, it goes a little off script. I just thought it was funny that like there's a whole episode. South Park likes to make these really, really obtuse film references sometimes. And it was kind of edifying to find this one and be like, oh, my God, I recognize that. Like they're taking it straight from the David Lean film. So I thought that was crazy. I don't know. Uh, so, you know, after you finish watching Great Expectations on HBO Max, check out that South Park episode uh, and to contrast and compare. Um, so, yeah, a little bit about the production of this movie. So this was actually adapted by a stage play that was written by Alec Guinness, who uh, wrote the role for, of uh, he, he cast himself as the, in the role of Herbert Pocket in the play as well and uh, was brought back for the movie. And uh, Marticia Hunt, who plays Miss Havisham, is the same in the, both the play and the movie as well. Uh, David Lean was not actually a Dickens fan when he was dragged to this play by one of his wives. Uh, and after leaving it, he became enamored both with Alec Guinness and with Dickens. Actually, the film he made directly after this was an adaptation of Oliver Twist. So he got right on that Dickens train. Um, and yeah, this adaptation, it cuts a great deal from the original source material, for instance, there's a big subplot in the book, I don't know if you remember this, involving uh, a character named Dolge Orlick, who is Joe's apprentice blacksmith who is fired, and then he he basically murders Pip's sister, and then comes back later in the book and tries to murder Pip before getting killed himself. Yeah, I, I, I definitely noticed that because there are parts of this, while this film doesn't necessarily shy away from the darker parts of the, the novel, it definitely glosses over some moments that could definitely be darker. Like that scene where they're just suddenly like, oh yeah, and then my sister died and then and then this woman came and married Joe. And it, it was yeah. like, wait, wait, wait a minute. Like there's like a really horrific like assault that happens here in the middle of that. And there's just kind of those moments that in there that they definitely, and I don't know if it's because it was the 40s or they didn't have time or what they were doing exactly, but there are definitely omissions. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? I feel like I'm okay not having that whole subplot in there. I feel like there's a lot going on in this story already. And uh, you can you can cut that. You can just say, oh, you know, she died of a disease or something. You know, it's it's more concise and, and more humane to her, honestly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it wasn't a subplot that I necessarily missed. It was just one of those things where I was like, oh, yeah, like that seemed really abrupt because I was expecting something else. 
But I think the only thing that I really missed from the novel plot wise was the so the the convict who's on the moors with uh magwitch at the beginning Mm -hmm. he's the one who turns them in at the end but he's also the guy who stood up miss haversham in the novel oh is he yeah and i don't think they made that very clear in the film like they sort of referenced it but he as a character is sort of like flattened and just used as a plot point more than as like an actual character and that was the only thing that i thought like oh i I really wish they had made this more clear because i think that could have been really interesting the way that those two storylines were more intertwined than pip even realized and it also makes it gives uh, miss havisham a little more motivation to be taking estella under her wing in particular because it's like abel's daughter you know so yeah, yeah oh, that's interesting exactly. yeah i just didn't think that that was very clear and again it may have just been for the sake of time they just didn't have time to like develop a whole other character but it that was the only thing that i thought oh well i wish this was there yeah for sure for sure one of the other changes that they made was to the ending so the original ending actually takes place uh when the characters are quite a bit older than they're shown here at the end of the book pip goes away to egypt for more than a decade and he comes back and like finds that Estella has been living in Miss Havisham's estate this whole time and has gone a little bit crazy like Miss Havisham has. But uh, this time around, uh, Kay Walsh, who was Lean's wife at the time, made the suggestion that they change it for both of them to be younger and for Pip to kind of come in and rescue her from, from uh, Miss Havisham's fate. And because of that, uh, David Lean liked that idea so much he gave his wife a co-screenwriting credit on this. So just for that one addition, not a bad little... Uh, just just a as a treat... Bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Here you go. I'm gonna. I'm cheating on you a lot. I'm gonna marry five more women after you. Uh, but enjoy this screenwriter. Um, also, the other noteworthy thing about this is that this is the first major film role for Alec Guinness, later to be Sir Alec Guinness. And it makes me very sad that people tend, these days only know him from Star Wars because Alec Guinness is one of our most versatile and unusual and interesting act like performers ever. Uh, he, he was equally adept at comedy and drama and thrillers, and he could, he could kind of do a little bit of everything. And obviously, Obi-Wan is iconic. I'm not throwing shade at Obi-Wan, but, you know, check out the Ealing comedies, check out Kind Hearts and Cornets, and check out this performance, because I feel like he steals this entire movie. Like, every scene that Alec Guinness is in, he is, he's a delight. He's this weird little foppish, like, hyperactive character, and... I don't know. He amuses me a lot. He seems confused a lot. Like he's just like like things are happening around him, and he's just sort of looking at them. Like what? What? Why is this happening around oh, me? Man. But then he. But then Pip will ask him to do something. And he'll just do it. Like he's yeah. he's definitely like a ride or die for Pip in this in this movie. But it's just <laughs> it's just, it's just so funny because he's just he obviously knows more about this world than Pip does, but yet he's very unsuited for the kind of surprises that Pip brings into his life. Very much so. There's a moment in this movie where I actually like physically laughed out loud, and it's when uh, Pocket comes home and finds that Pip is talking with Magwitch. He freezes in place, looking at this scary-looking man. The camera dollies in slowly as if he's about to exclaim in terror, and he just goes, Hello. (laughs) like really I just laughed my ass off it's like oh my god that's how like a British person at this time screams in terror it's hello oh oh dear like I don't know his delivery on that was just like note perfect and it made me laugh 
Um, and that's the thing about Dickens, too. Like, people who haven't read him or feel, like, put off by him. Dickens is funny. Like, these are funny books. These are silly, witty books. Uh, and they're they're actually, like, fun to read. I think a lot of people get chased away from classical literature. But Dickens is fun to read. Oh, yeah. No, I would I would agree. Sometimes he runs a little on the saccharine side for me. There are a couple sure. of there are a couple of Dickens where I'm just like, OK, like like I, Patch I did, Adams. Did he write Patch Adams? Pretty yeah. Sure. Like just no. there. there's a few that are like, you know, the, the, the girl on her deathbed kind of kind of stories, which are not necessarily my favorite. But when he gets it yeah. right, he really gets it right. And yeah, I feel like, you know, Christmas Carol, uh, Great Expectations, Tale of Two Cities, like these are books that, you know, are they're funny, but they're also dark and they're, you know, he he manages to balance that really well while also giving us sort of an edge of political satire and political interest because uh, the yeah. world was the world was changing. And I think that that's part of why he's so interested in class, because the world that a lot of people were hanging on to just didn't exist anymore. Absolutely. Yeah, that's very true. Well, let's jump into this movie a little bit. We've kind of gone back and forth, but that's that's you know that's that's a yeah. the train of thought. The train of thought does not follow one track. We just go wherever we go, you know, whatever. <laughs> deal with the people. Uh, yeah. So we open with this really great kind of classical Hollywood score, which I swear to God I've heard before somewhere. Like I feel like I've heard it in a trailer or something like that. But I feel like the music in this is would would suit very well as like stock Hollywood music if you're ever editing some kind of project. Um, now, opening your movie with the shot of like a book and page, pages turning is always a risky choice because I'm like, all right, because right now I'm bored. Like you're, you're showing me this is going to be a very stiff, stodgy, by the letter kind of uh, experience. And, you know, and luckily they get out of that pretty quickly. I, I uh, we've been watching my partner and I have been watching uh, or rewatching Disney movies, the animated classics in order um, every Saturday morning. And nice. we're in the 40s. And so they're they're still there's just starting to do the thing where at the beginning they're like once upon a time and there's like the book that's opening. And that's all I could think of when I was watching this is like right. this, is, this is like a Disney movie. Like they're, they're trying to tell us like this is a book that we're looking yeah. at. Yeah. It's it's a classical choice, but at the same time, it's like, all right, you're not you're not getting me super excited. But then we open on this really beautiful, like it's clearly like sunset over the marshes, and though it's in very stark black and white, you still kind of get a sense of like the color and the scope and the beauty of this scene, which is really cool. I, um, I don't know the yeah. technical word for this, but I'm gonna call it wind work. The mm. wind, the wind work in this scene. Like I don't know where they filmed this or how they got the wind to like blow everything like just at the perfect angle. Because even just watching Pip like run across this you know marsh, he almost looks like he's about to blow over. Right. And it's it's just this beautiful, beautiful scene. Like you said, like it's black and white, but like you can almost see like the forces of nature. You know, just sort of as visible presences in this first shot. Yes. And then we get into the graveyard, which I really love the design of the graveyard. And this is kind of where I was talking about how this is almost a comic book adaptation of Great Expectations. Look at the set design in this churchyard in the beginning. Like the graves are kind of staggered in these impossible angles. Like I think it's I don't know if it's meant to indicate like uh, uh, negligence or if it's trying to do some kind of forced perspective. But everything looks very exaggerated and extreme. And that includes the creepy old man who jumps out from behind the graves, Abel Magwitch, who is played by an actor named Finley Curry. 
uh, who's just got one of those faces. Like in the olden days, you'd call it a mug. Like he's got a mug on him. Like it's a really distinctive kind of like, I don't know, like like ugly and mean looking, but still have like a softness to it, which is interesting. He actually reminds me of Dave Batista. He like, does. He's got yeah. Batista energy. Like, yeah, yeah. Batista in like in 20 years, if he stops working out, you know, yeah. <laughs> like it's that same kind of vibe. Um, but yes, for, and, and a lot of this is going to be, you know, I won't go too much into the plot details because this is a book that's been around 150 years. Chances are y'all have read it. Um, but you know, I, I liked, I, I liked that they kept the script, like the, the Dickens dialogue to the letter pretty much, but they found a way to make this seem like almost natural. Like it's not natural, it's heightened, but there's a comfortability that the actors have with the pace and with the tenor of the language that I really liked. And it kind of made the film very pacey, you know, it's swept along in a very nice clip. Um, but yes, Magwitch threatens him, tells Pip to come back with a file and some whittles, uh, which I've never heard it called whittles with the W, but yeah, I liked <laughs> that. You know what whittles is, don't you boy? Um, and Pip is a good boy. He's good to his word, and he brings it back. We also get to meet uh, his sister briefly and Joe the blacksmith. And this is an interesting inversion, I think, of the usual trope. Like, I think the usual literary trope, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, is that, like, it's the cruel stepfather or the cruel, like, man and, like, the sympathetic sister or something like that. And here's the – this is the flip side. Like, both Joe and Pip – live in fear of uh, his sister who's like very cruel and domineering and uh, Joe's just kind of like a simpleton and, and he, you know, has a, he has a, he has a generally good heart. I don't know, but it, it seems like that's the inversion of the usual trope. I will say watching this, I would just kept asking myself, how did these two get together? Like I, <laughs> don't really understand how these two people ended up married. Cause she's, she's almost outsized a scold like she's just oh, yeah. very she I mean there's a scene like like maybe 10 minutes in where she like pulls up in a wagon and she's yelling for Pip but they overlay her voice with like a horn and so I love that yeah, yeah. they do that and they do do two different horns for when she's saying Pip Joe like I don't know it's a really interesting choice yeah yeah but it's supposed to definitely represent her to us as somebody who's like She's, I mean, she's abusive and she's cruel and she's, but it's kind of played for laughs too, which yeah. is kind of odd. But it's, I think it's because she's the woman, right? And so it's like, oh, it's so funny because they're being henpecked by a woman. Right. They want her to seem shrewish and kind of, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, it's an inversion, maybe not the wokest one, but you know, 1860 again, I'm gonna, I'll, you know. Uh, but yeah, Pip steals the file and some food, and I love the scene when he's running back. This is what I'm talking about when things get weird and strange, because he's running through the field and he's being like mentally taunted by all the cows. Like the cows are talking to him while he's running through the fog. It's so strange. The fog is also really interesting too. Like it creates this very like claustrophobic feeling even though he's in this wide open space he feels like he's being like hemmed in and, and it's not just the cows it's like the fence post and like the trees like everything is sort of like oh you're a bad kid and like you're stealing and you're gonna be yeah. put on a you're gonna be sent off to australia you know like it's yeah it's it is weird it is so weird it's a wild choice but i really like once that happened i'm like all right, all right. I underestimated this movie. This is going in some strange directions, and I'm on board. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to ride this out. And I will say, uh, I think it's Tony Wager who plays young Pip. Uh huh. He, I, 
sometimes child actors do not do well in these particular no. adaptations because they can come off as a little bit too like simpery or cutesy or precocious. I think he actually plays it really well. He's probably one of the best like for this type of character, like this innocent young boy type of character. I think he plays it in a way that's more natural and believable than oh yeah, a lot of versions of this that I've seen. I don't know if it's a hot take or not. I think Tony Wager is better in this role than uh, John Mills is when he grows up a little later. But <laughs> I don't know. I, I think he's he's a really good uh, child actor. I agree with you. And he, I think he just radiates kind of a very simple uh, decency and and intelligence which and sincerity, is, which sincerity. I think is Im- which I think is important for this role. Like it can't just oh, be yeah. like, oh, this is a cute kid. It has to be like a cute kid who's doing this because this is what he would do. Oh, yeah. No, Pip is like capital S sincere about everything all the time, you know, which which makes him, I don't know, depending on how cynical the reader is, it makes him uh, uh, either annoying or kind of charming. But I found him charming. I don't know. Uh, so he brings the file and the pie back to Magwitch. Magwitch is able to escape, but he's rounded up a few nights later in uh, a, a fight in a mud flats that weirdly made me nervous because, like, that's really deep mud and I've had my like feet stuck in really deep mud and I've like sucked the shoes right off my feet and I never got them back. And I think I've been afraid of like quicksand mud ever since then. I don't know. Movies have just taught me to be afraid of mud. Like I'm just yeah. like, oh, that's like quicksand. You're going to go down. <laughs> exactly. See, movies taught me to be afraid of that, to be afraid of oil slicks. That's never happened to me. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah. Various swinging traps or like, you know, nooses that catch me by my feet. Yeah. TV lied to me, man. Um, Going yes. downstairs in the dark. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, Magwitch is uh, uh, captured once again, sent back to prison. He's going to be sent off to Australia to serve his sentence. Um, but Pip also makes it clear to him through eye contact that it wasn't him that gave him away, which comes into uh, account later. But well, yes, and, so, and Joe yeah. is like, you know, well, you know, we, we wouldn't want you to starve no matter what you did, which I think is a really touching statement. Yeah. I mean, the central kind of thesis, if you want to boil down great expectations, is just that, like, it's the way an act of kindness can, like, ripple throughout and and affect other people and, like, change your fortune down the line. And so that you should err on the side of being kind. And that's a very nice message. You know, whatever else the book has going on on plot beats and everything like that, that's the overall core message. And it's a good one. And I think Joe and Pip both kind of epitomize that uh, in the early going, especially. Um, so we cut ahead a couple of years, and uh, uh, Pip is now a strapping young 40-year-old, I mean 19-year-old. Um, John Mills looks crazy old as young Pip, and I confirmed that he was, in fact, 38 when he's playing this young man from the ages of 19 to 25. We're skipping the Miss Haversham part. Oh, excuse me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I completely skipped the Miss Haversham part. You're right, you're right. Yes, that's an ex- extremely important. Um so, yes, he is brought in to go see Miss Havisham, who is uh, a mysterious old recluse that lives in this crumbling mansion nearby. She summoned Pip over to play, and he doesn't know exactly what that means. This is also where he gets to meet her daughter, Estella. I'm not played... sure I know what that means. <laughs> I was going to say that. Okay, uh, what? how would you react if like somebody like pointed at you like she does in this movie and says, I have a fancy play, play. Like, I feel oh. like my instinct would just be to do a little dance. Like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as a child, I probably would have run away. But, like, oh, yeah. I, it's just such a weird, like, request. Like, I just want to see a child play. Yeah. Well, so, that, that's does like, Estella not play? Like, I'm very confused. I mean, Estella just seems like, 
laser focused on insulting this child the entire time. That's, That's kind of her true. raison d'etre, if you will allow me to butcher the French. Um, but luckily, she does give them a deck of cards, and they play a game called Beggar the Neighbor, which I looked up. It's the the modern equivalent would be. Uh, have you ever played Egyptian Rat Screw? Yes, like, I have. Yeah, that's what they're playing, basically. Yeah, so oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Early, early version of that. And may I just say, Marticia Hunt as Miss Haversham is like she was the focal point of every scene that she was in for me. Yes. Like from the very beginning, like he walks in and she's just sitting in her chair and just like wearing this dela- like torn up old wedding dress. Her hair, like whoever did her makeup and hair, deserved an award because she has oh, yeah. like this, this like crazy hair that has like rotting dried flowers in it like and she's sitting amongst like these cobwebs it's very gothic this is oh, this extremely. is definitely like th- this this movie started gothic but it took a turn into classic gothic here oh yeah absolutely yeah she looks simultaneously like crazy and harried and also like she's part of the furniture like she's adhered to this chair and like the co- you, you get the sense that like the cobwebs are on the verge of growing over her. And like, I love the shot of the Bible that's covered in the, like the, that's been covered in cobwebs so thoroughly she can't even open it because, you know, to represent the death of her soul and everything else, you know, she's just, she's just completely given up on everything. All all the clocks are stopped. He notices that at like at the very beginning, like this woman knows how to create a mood. Yeah. And how how to, and how to stick with it. Like for all those years. Man, I, I want to just like do my house like that some point and just like have people come over. I'll just be waiting in my chair and just come in, play, play, <laughs> play. They boot up the PlayStation and they play. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Block so. out. I mean, like all her windows are blocked. Like there's no light. Like it's it is such a like just dark, but like very memorable atmosphere. Yeah, Absolutely. And Estella, like, I really like Gene Simmons' portrayal of Estella, like, as a young... I think uh, she gets a little bit more to do, and she's having fun with these lines and with interacting with the young boy. Um, We do... This does kind of codify Estella a little bit more as, like, I don't know, just the token girl. Like, because Pip falls, like, wildly in love with her, kind of just based on her looks. Like, she's not nice to him. She's not decent to him in any way. So unless, like that's his kink or whatever. Like, I don't know. He's, he's kind of just falling for her looks. And so like her beauty just becomes the focal point of everything. I, I want to know how many times she says the word boy in this, in this <laughs> film, she's always calling him boy and insulting him. Like he's, he's, he's so dirty. And yeah. Oh, yeah. They, they really run with that in the South park parody. I'll tell you that much. They, they really <laughs> run with the insults. Um, <laughs> So I also love, this is where he gets to meet Herbert Pocket as a young boy. And this kid is weird and wild. Like, I love this kid actor portraying young Pocket because he's just like shirtless and wants to fist fight. Like, just straight up, like, gentleman style, like, knuckles in the air. And he keeps doing the same move. Like, he'll, he'll like, jab, jab, and then he'll do this full 360 swing and people just duck and then gets up and punches him in the nose. And I like how he, sh- how he shakes himself off afterwards. And it's like, okay, we'll go again. I mean, I think that Alec Guinness perhaps channels this kid. Or this kid oh. is chan- channeling Alec Guinness, perhaps. I, I think they definitely rehearsed together to get some mannerisms right. Because, yeah, because, uh, like, even physically, like, the kid looks a lot like Alec Guinness when he grows up. And it actually took me a little bit to recognize Guinness when I saw him. Just because I've never seen him this young before. Uh, I think he was like 30, 
30 at this time or something like that. Um, but yeah, and we'll get to him in a minute, but yeah. Um, but yeah, so he, he, it's interesting to see Pip because he, he grew up rough and low and he's kind of always complaining about his, his course status in life, but he also has impeccable manners. Like he knows exactly how to address people and how to comport himself and like is a very like intelligent little boy. Um, and Estella makes him want to become a gentleman, like because right. he wa- he wants to be in the same social class as her. And yeah, the character of Biddy comes along, and she's been also like kind of decentralized in this um, film adaptation, which is probably fine. Like she's a fairly small character, but she comes in and kind of marries Joe after uh, his first wife dies, and she's like a good, kind person that has a positive influence on them. Uh, but yeah, yeah, uh, 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 Pip is confessing to her that he wants to become a gentleman because of a girl. And, you know, how do you rise above your station? And that's kind of a lot of the crux of the later half of the book. So uh, we do cut ahead a little bit now, like after uh, Estella is being sent away overseas to kind of go to school and uh, uh, seek out some prospects. Uh, but uh, young Pip still comes to visit Miss Havisham fairly regularly. But we do have a cut and we grow him up a little bit to the age of 19 and again, yeah, this is where I got a little ahead of myself. Uh, John Mills playing older Pip, uh, looking nothing like a 19-year-old at all. Even in the 1940s sense that everybody looked 40, like he really looks like he's 40. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, so he, he get, they get a visit from a uh, portly lawyer named Mr. Jaggers. And this actor actually also played the same exact role in the earlier film adaptation of Great Expectations, which... I feel like he's kind of meant to play a big pompous bloviating lawyer. Like he's great at that. I was going to say, what other role was he going to play here? I mean, yeah. yeah. Pip, obviously. Yeah. Pip, yeah. I, I'm a young man. Uh, also, Eivor Barnard, uh, who plays Mr. Wemmick, is oh, kind yeah, of yeah. wonderful. His his little, like, he's a very, like, frantic little assistant who's just sort of bouncing around the office. And he's the one with the aged parent. Exactly. And, yeah. And this nebbishy that, little guy. Yeah. Yeah, some some great just minor character work here by by Dickens and you know translated by Lean. Yeah, I, and great little touches too, like when. Uh, so, oh well, I guess the important part is that this lawyer, Mister Jaggers, comes to him, tells him that he's been offered an apprenticeship in the city for which he'll receive two hundred and fifty dollars a year. He's going to be rooming with uh, Mister Pocket, and uh, you know, so he needs to come to London to seek his fortune because he's been told by some mysterious benefactor that he is a young man of moderate expectations no great expectations that's the name of the book i always love it when they say the name of the the book or movie in the book or movie (laughs) oh yeah no say say the title win the movie yeah absolutely yeah (laughs) absolutely um so yes he goes to say goodbye to miss havisham who he is convinced is his mysterious benefactor uh and she doesn't really give anything away or dissuade him of that notion and then he goes off to london where he finally gets to meet Alec Guinness as Herbert Pocket, his new roommate and his former sparring partner. Uh, They get along immediately. I love, love, love the scene where Pip asks him to teach him manners while he's also telling the story of Miss Havisham's tragic downfall. And it's uh, the way it's delivered is so efficient and so witty and so fun because like he's telling this very sad story and he's blazing through it, like not to the sense that we're losing any details, but he keeps cutting off to correct like his fork placement or his napkin use. And, oh, not at all, I'm sure. Not at all, I'm sure. Like, it's really <laughs> witty and clever. And like, and you get a lot of story out. You get a lot of exposition done in this really fast-paced, clever way. I loved it. Well, and also, he's just a great roommate. Like, he's like <laughs> the most considerate roommate I've ever seen on, oh, on screen. 
He is down. Yeah, he's up for whatever. And I love that, like, for a brief period, this turns into, like, what I imagine the 1940s equivalent or the 1860s equivalent of, like, Harold and Kumar would be, you know? <laughs> it's, like a, it's like a wild stoner frat comedy with these two ne'er-do-wells, and they go into serious debt because they keep throwing all these parties, probably because those ex- invitations look expensive. They, they buy new <laughs> furniture. Like, that, buy- <laughs> that apartment is way better furnished by the end of the film than it was at the beginning. <laughs> oh, man. And, like, I guess everyone's sitting around drinking tea and laughing quietly is the equivalent of a lampshade on a head now but i don't know it is <laughs> it is kind brandy of brandy and cigars brandy and cigars that's the, yeah the equivalent like, of a rave yeah the the implication is that like this these are two young men uh hale and hardy and in the prime of their youth and they are up to no good my they're favorite just having very polite parties. my favorite is the at the end of that like it's it's not really a montage but it's like the precursor to a montage is where they're sitting down and they're like comparing their books and it's like herbert's debts and pip's debts yeah and they're yeah. just like oh we've we, we're in trouble it's a good thing that it's my birthday tomorrow yeah <laughs> <laughs> And it never seems to be a problem because once he starts running low on money, he just goes to the lawyer and they give him more. Eventually, he even gets a raise for doing whatever it is that he's doing. And he starts making 500 quid a year, which is enough to support him in luxury for a long time. And I think this is the stretch of the movie where I did kind of my attention faded a little bit. And that's because a lot of the attention started being shifted over to Pip's relationship with the older Estella, played by Valerie Hobson, who we meet shortly after uh, his promotion. And uh, I'm not knocking uh, Valerie Hobson. She's in a lot of other movies. She's in Bride of Frankenstein. She's very, very good. She's a very talented actress. But this movie, like we said, does not seem to be terribly interested in Estella. And as such, I had a hard time getting terribly interested in their relationship. I don't know. What do you think? Uh, Yeah, I I mean, like I said, I just think that... She's. We're just told that she's on this grand mission to destroy men's lives, but we don't really see any destruction in this. Not really. Like she yeah. dates another guy. Like that's kind of about the worst she does. She right. dances with other gentlemen. She she almost marries a guy, but doesn't. Which in the novel she does. Like she's a widow right. at the end of the novel. But it's just like for me, it's just kind of like if you're gonna tease me with something like that, I want to see a little bit more chaos and havoc. You know? <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Like something I wanna, like. I mean, this this is Bride of Frankenstein. Like, let's see a little bit more. Uh, I, I want to see yeah. some, like, shattered hearts in her wake, you know? I want to see that, like, and I think that's the thing. They're kind of equivocating, and that's why I didn't really know where to come down on this version of Estella. Like, is she is she feminist? Is she anti-feminist? It's kind of hard to say because she's kind of mostly just there, you know? Like, the movie's just not terribly interested in her. Right. And I don't even really know why Pip is that interested in her. Like there's not where she's not really we don't have any redeeming qualities. She's just supposed to be very beautiful. Yeah, she's that's it. And I guess like she's witty as well. But I mean, it's also hard to distinguish who's witty and who's not when everybody is speaking Dickens dialogue like and they're all witty and they're all they're all sharper than any of us on our best days, you know, (laughs) like even with the common gutter people, you know, Um And so eventually we get a scene where uh, Pip is visited by a mysterious stranger in the middle of the night who he vaguely recognizes. It's this kind of harried old man. With an eye patch. With an eye patch. I love (laughs) a good guy with an eye patch. And eventually it's revealed that this is Magwitch. This is the inmate or the convict who uh, Pip had helped as a young man. 
And he's since gone to New South Wales and Australia to serve his prison sentence. Australia was a prison colony at this time. And uh, he's become very successful uh, as a, it was a sheep herder, right? Like he has like a, a farm or a ranch or something like that. Um, yeah. It, it's really interesting. This whole storyline has always been really interesting to me because it really illustrates, I, I mean, he's obviously very happy to do this for Pip, yeah. but it really illustrates that the gen- this this life of luxury this going into debt and the not having to work and the having this these nice rooms and the 500 a year which is all very standard like 19th century like people really were interested in how much people made every year that's why you get yeah. it in every single Jane Austen uh thing you know oh he, right. make, he makes 10,000 a year but <sighs> this to me really illustrates that that money comes from somewhere. Like it comes from labor and often it comes from labor of people in, you know, in prison colonies or in factories or, you know, that kind of thing. And so I thought that was really interesting. Like Pip has just been going along, like going into debt and just doing whatever he wants. And suddenly he's confronted with the fact that this money comes from somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. I really like the, I I like the way this whole scene plays out. Like it's very well done the way he kind of just slowly reveals who he is and then uh, Finley Curry's performance is like really affecting because it's obvious that this is a man who has nothing. Like he's made this fortune for himself and he has no one in the world to give it to. So he gives it to this one little boy who showed him one act of kindness uh, years and years ago. He you brought know, him he a never, pie. He brought <laughs> him a pie. Like he brought him a file. Like he he was as good as his word, which is it's worth a lot, you know. And uh, it's it's just kind of a sweet subplot that. It, and he does get a little obsessive almost, a little clingy. He considers himself like his second father, which maybe he's entitled to a little bit because he's been funding like his lavish lifestyle. Um, but Pip doesn't really handle this news super well because he was always under the impression that it was Miss Havisham who had been financing him and Miss Havisham let him believe that. And so now he kind of just doesn't really know what role he has in her life. And he starts to suspect that he's just been manipulated this entire time, which, of course, is pretty much the case. Um, She's been using him as like this proxy because she wants to hurt all the men because a man hurt her once long, long ago. Um, The stuff with Havisham and and Magwitch, like all of that coming together is kind of, I don't want to say contrived. It's just like it's a little convenient. It's like, are there only four people in London? Like wh- how do all these people know each other? Because yeah, this is a pretty classic Dickens move though. Like, Oh he, yeah. He loves doing this in his books. He loves having all of these things that seem like they're loose ends. And then they suddenly all come together. And if that seems really contrived to you, it's because it probably is, but, oh, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but he loves it. He loves not ha- leaving any, any loose ends. Everything has to be explained and connected to each other. Yeah. And, you know, it works. It, it, it suits the, the kind of melodramatic nature of this movie, I think. Um, I will say, though, I, there, there's this scene where he comes, he goes back to Miss Aversham's house to kind of confront her about leading him on. Yeah. And I don't, uh, this goes back to what we were saying earlier about Estella. Like, Estella is totally mixed up in this. Like, yeah. he thought that because Miss Aversham was his, or, you know, he thought that she was his his benefactor, that that meant he was going to get Estella. And right. to, me that, to me, that's just like, okay, does anyone care what Estella thinks? Like, does she have any thoughts or motivations? Like, <laughs> I mean, clearly not. And he's got yeah. this whole great monologue where, like, he's 
you know, explaining all these things and like how, how badly she hurt him and everything like that. And she's just kind of impassive, you know, but like, I don't know. I feel like we need something like either something in one direction or another. She's needs to either be delighting in this cruelty or she needs to be like feeling affected by it. And I don't feel like we get much of either here. Well, all she says is like, I told you not to fall in love with me. And like, to be yeah. fair, she did tell him. So yeah, she told like, him. yeah, no, yeah, it's fair. It just reminded me of that scene from a uh, 500 days of summer where he's talking to like his date and she's like let me get this straight like this girl said she didn't want a relationship and she didn't steal mm. anything or abuse you in any way <laughs> like she was clear yeah yeah, yeah. so that, that's that's kind of what i thought of i i don't like it these storylines where you know i, I don't like the friend zone storyline i think it encourages no. a lot of really bad behavior um and this might be the first version of it since dickens wrote this but yeah. But the it's oldie just friend zone, yeah, yeah. And so that, that that's not my favorite. Although I do in, really enjoy the scene that it leads into with Miss Haversham. I was gonna say I think this might be one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie. Just be, and maybe it's just because I've been watching a lot of horror movies for the month of October. Like I'm I'm just getting super into that. But I'm seeing like horror movie DNA in every movie I'm watching, and the scene where Miss Havisham burns to death is like straight up like frantic like horror movie shooting it's like he slams the door which causes a log to roll out of the fire and roll onto her musty clothes which are so dry and like dirty that they just go up in flames she's screaming at first he's walking down the stairs outside and he thinks it's like oh she's just wailing because i just emotionally devastated her but then after a second like the screaming intensifies he realizes something's wrong he runs back in and we have this amazing shot of him running to this big long table trying to pull the tablecloth off but it's so old and musty it's tearing off in his hands so he's got to grab it higher up the camera zooms along the table while he's pulling the tablecloth in the opposite direction then the camera pans back while he runs up throws the towel or the the tablecloth on her and he falls on the tablecloth and almost jostles the camera like almost falls straight into the lens and and then he actually even lifts up the tablecloth and we see like her burned dead corpse underneath it. And I'm like, this is kind of like a shocking scene. Like this old lady just burned to death in this movie. But it's a really dynamic and interesting and well shot scene. The the scene of it, the tablecloth is just it's so well done. And like, yeah, I, the whole one of the whole points of it is that she, this this wedding feast that had been prepared before she was dumped by this guy is still there. Like she basically just let it rot and calcify on the table so you see like this cake and like all these things and so when he's pulling it you see all of this like rotting food go everywhere like it's just it's such a great set piece i mean it might be the best set piece in this film oh i think so for sure and i mean and i i love i mean the design is so vivid that we just like understand that he wouldn't be able to pull that tablecloth off he under we understand like of course this would fall apart like this has been moldering for 20 years like this is this is not going to help anybody. And and it was her own negligence and decay that kind of sealed her fate in the end. Uh, and that that's kind of that's the last we see of Miss Havisham, of course. And we get kind of a hard pivot to a almost like a prison break sequence. We're, we're trying to get we're seeing like the planning and staging of a heist almost where Pocket and uh, Pip are trying to get Magwitch out of the country. Because he still has an active warrant against him. He is not supposed to be in London, but he just couldn't resist, like, seeing his boy, you know, before he died. So, 
Uh, I don't know. I just, I, 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 just I, how much Herbert Pocket just jumps into this with no like, like he's just like, yeah, sure, I'll I'll learn how to all the times that the boats are on patrol and I'll learn how to <laughs> row and yeah, yeah, like he's just he's just like down like he wants he wants to cause some trouble like immediately. He's, he's <laughs> oh, 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 oh dear dear boy, fuck the police. Yeah, it's quiet. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, basically, that's kind of Kinda. what the attitude here is at the end. Yeah, fuck the bobbies. Hair what? Yes, quite. <laughs> um, but yeah, so this leads to uh, a pretty cool little set piece where uh, uh, Pip and Pocket and Magwitch are being chased in a rowboat by the constable uh, who has the scar-faced man that put Magwitch in prison on board, and he's ratting him out again. And this leads to a pretty epic old man fight in the water. One of them gets sucked into like the propeller of a steamship in kind of like, again, a pretty gross and like shocking bit of violence for this movie. Like he just gets sucked into it and uh, Pip is able to rescue Magwitch at the last second, but he's already been pretty badly damaged from, uh, from the fight and he's not doing super great. Uh, shortly after that, Magwitch is uh, condemned to hang uh, for escaping prison and uh, sentenced to death, but his illness catches up to him before that can happen. He's put in the hospital. Before he could uh, have his final moment, though, Pip goes back and talks to Jaggers and learns some very interesting facts about his lineage. I'm sorry, you were going to say something? Oh, I was just going to say, one other shot that really stuck out to me is the scene in the courtroom where they do the long shot when when the judge says that they're all going to be returned to the place from whence they came and hung to the the neck. There's this really long shot down the row of convicts that are being convicted and they're all having like these reactions to the news that they're going to die and it's it's a really interesting shot just seeing all these different it's like probably 15 or 16 people and and Magwitch is at the end and they all have these like really affecting but very different reactions to this news and I, I was just very impressed by that shot it, it had a very silent movie feel to it. One of the convicts that they pan to, like, he puts he's, his hands are in manacles and he puts his hands to his neck and goes, like, shakes his head, no, no. Like, it's very, uh, it's almost pantomime, but it's very effective. And, like, one woman goes, like, she falls backwards and she almost takes, like, the people next to her, like, with her because they're all shackled together. And, yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. And there are some black people in this crowd as well, which is, like, also... It felt like some commentary as well. Like the, it, it's interesting to see that the oppression was going on all the way back then and in that time and in that place. Um, but we uh, we go to visit uh, Mr. Jaggers, the lawyer. Pip confronts him about uh, him knowing who his benefactor is. Why didn't he tell him? Why didn't he tell him? What happened? What is this whole story? And we learn that Magwitch uh, impregnated a woman uh, who eventually tried to kill him he had to escape. Is that, am I getting that right? Like she tried to kill him and then uh, she was convicted to prison where she had his baby. Yes. And, it's very yes. unclear the exact chain of events. We don't even really get why Magwitch was in prison. Um, that's yeah, just, we don't really know. That's, we, that's not really important to the story. We know the Scarface guy turned him in, but we don't know if he did it or, or what was going on. But we learn that this woman, this convict, is now working for Mr. Jaggers as a housekeeper. And she's kind of, you know, they they warn Pip about her in the early going, that she has her good days and bad days, and that you don't want to, you know, uh, antagonize her if you can. But we learn that this woman is Estella's mother, and that Miss Havisham had specifically requested to adopt this child to train into her ultimate man-killing 
weapon, I guess. And we get a uh, great Dickens, like straight out of Dickens speech here, uh, because Pip asks, you know, Pip basically accuses Jagger of like, why would you, why would you give like Estella to Miss Haversham? Like that's a terror. Like why would you do that to to a child? And Jagger's gives this like very Dickensian speech about children and the way that the system mistreats them. Like he talks about how like the children of convicts, he's like, I've seen them tried, you know, I've seen them put in prison. I've seen them put in workhouses. I've seen them being taken advantage of on the streets. Like, what was I supposed to do? I thought that maybe I could save one of them from that. Yeah. And I, and it's just, it's classic Dickens. Like he was so concerned with putting these types of, by getting the word out there for people who otherwise wouldn't know that there was this whole underbelly of, uh, of child exploitation that especially it, during the industrial revolution, it adds an extra shade of character to Jaggers' uh, uh, character as well, just because he's been very brusque and kind of bloviating and very like uh, full of himself, and like you don't really get a good sense of who he is. But then we see that he has this act of kindness in him, and again, it's about small acts radiating throughout history, you know, and how they interconnect our lives and everything like that. So it's a nice way to tie it back to the theme. Um, but, uh, uh, Pip is able to go see Magwitch on his deathbed and he's able to relay the information that not only is his daughter alive and thriving, but that he is in love with her and that he's going to do everything he can to take care of her. And so Magwitch gets to die happy, if nothing else. It was a nice little moment. Yeah, I, it was a nice moment, but all I could think of was like, I'm, I'm not sure like a dad wants to hear like, oh, by the way, <laughs> your daughter's super hot, like on, on his deathbed, but you know. I'm glad he was happy. She's alive and she's well. And I'm straight going to hit that, bro. <laughs> right here. Yeah, yeah. What's up? What's up? Give me some. Oh, oh, he's dead. So, yeah. Yeah. The, de- the death is also very dramatic, right? It's it's movie death. He just suddenly like, stops breathing. Yeah. It's like last smile, like, ah, oh. And then this whole event leaves Pip shaken. There's a great POV shot of him, like, walking back to his apartment and his head is swimming and he's dizzy. And like we get a first person shot of him like walking through the door and then collapsing on the mattress. This shot would not have been easy in 1946. They really didn't have handheld movie cameras like this. This would have been a very complicated shot to pull off. So it's pretty impressive. Um, and this is just kind of like shorthand for illness. Pip has an illness. It lays him up for a couple months. We don't really know what's wrong with him. But basically, all of his expectations dry up. You know, his benefactor is no longer living. Uh, he doesn't have any real skills because he trained to be a gentleman and not like a blacksmith. And so he has to go home. And he he's uh, he returns to Joe and Biddy, who embrace him with open arms and they welcome him. And everything seems happy. And then finally, he hears that Estella might be back um, and living in Havisham's Manor. And he goes to see her. He convinces her that she needs to get out of the house in this big dramatic way by literally forcing the sunshine into the room. He's tearing the drapes off the walls and he's ripping open the shutters and it's a big dramatic moment. And then she falls in love with him and they walk off into the sunset and we get a nice big great expectations at the end as they're looking back on this crumbling manor. You know, I as much as I don't like the sort of forced feeling of this romantic ending, I did really like the parallels when she has like she has the bible where miss haversham had her bible on the on the desk and i i really also liked pip tearing off all the windows and her just being like i'm afraid because i think if if the central theme of this book is like small like small good deeds have a ripple effect 
I think the other like shadow theme of this book is that trauma also has a ripple effect. Like one right. person, one one guy did Miss Haversham wrong, and that affected Pip's life and Estella's life, even though they weren't there for it. Um, yeah. And so, like, I think that part of part of the symbolism of the window, and again, this is not in the novel, but like part of the symbolism of the the windows being torn off is this idea that, like, no, like we can we can either you know surrender to the the, the way that trauma has shaped us, or we can try to figure out ways to live around it. And I think that, that worked well, even though I wasn't as much of a fan of like the romance part. That's that's a really good analysis, and it also kind of it makes Pip into too much of a heroic savior character at the end. So we're not seeing like, uh, we're not seeing Miss Havisham's like selfish deeds echoing throughout history. We're seeing a heroic man saving a woman from herself, which is a less charitable, uh, read over this character. And again, Wait, that's, less not what, that's not what male characters are supposed to do. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Uh, if, if, uh, the great uh, literary character Mario has taught me anything, it's that, uh, you gotta go to all these castles, man. Uh, yeah, so it, it, that, that is my only real complaint about this a movie. Like, otherwise, like, I think it's, it's a really dynamic and entertaining and witty and, and, and fascinating movie. Like, I really enjoyed the experience of watching it. I just wish that they didn't give Estella such short shrift, because I think she is a fascinating character in the right hands. Uh, and I, I don't know, I, I just don't think they really gave her the proper due. Yeah, they just didn't give her much to do. I would be really interested in seeing... I, I actually haven't seen the Alfonso Cuaron uh, version, and I'd be interested in seeing that to see if he was able to do something a little bit more interesting with that character. I will say the only other element that we haven't really talked about that I wished was dialed down a little bit more is the voiceover. Yeah, yeah, there we really is, don't need it. There's a voiceover, and I think that they're just... they're just. I mean, they're just taking sections of the book. Like, this book is POV from Pip, like it's not it is a first person narration and i think they're just they're trying to mimic the book and give us a little bit of context for what's happening but like you said i don't think it's needed and honestly it kind of got a little distracting at times like i was like no yeah. i just i just want to look at this like beautiful weird scene i don't want to hear you explaining it to me right yeah yeah i mean 90% of the voiceover in movies i can kind of do without like i don't i don't like making too general of rules there's some voiceover i like but like I you I think the trick with adapting literary works is kind of making you forget that you're reading like you don't want to you don't want to be thinking about the book the entire time. You want to see mm. what distinctive stamp the filmmaker is putting on this story. And I think Lean does that, but then the the book parts kind of bring you back into it. The narration brings you back into it. And honestly, we really didn't talk about John Mills' performance at all, but I don't know, he didn't make much of an impression on me at all. Uh, I know he would go on to be a great actor. He won the Best Supporting Actor for Ryan's Daughter uh, 20 years later, but, you know. To be honest, I think younger Pip is more interesting than older Pip. Yeah. Uh, older Pip just seems... He seems more like a, a a plot device. Like he's just he's the main character, but he's really there to get all these other characters together and to, yeah. and to sort of do things. I, I think that him as a child is more interesting than him as an adult, which could be partially why the John Mills performance doesn't work as well. But like you said, I just kind of think he's too old. Like Alec, yeah. Alec Guinness barely gets away with uh, trying to play this young. And I, uh, I, I read the Ebert essay okay, <laughs> and, yeah. uh, uh, for, for this. And he points out, and I, I kind of thought this was a little gross actually, but he points out that both uh, Valerie Hobson and uh, Gene Sibbins 
were both really young when they made this. Like Valerie Hobson was 20 and Gene Simmons was 17. Yeah. And again, I found that a little gross. You don't have to point out women's ages, especially in context of how attractive they look. That was a little weird. Yeah. Um, but but I think that like this definitely starts to illustrate that double standard where like someone in their 30s, or a man in their 30s can play like a 19-year-old, but like we need a 17-year-old to play like the main female character. So right. I think it would have been better if they'd had like a teenager play him. Um, there's something about Pip that needs that sincerity. And I, I'm just not sure Mills completely pulled off that in the same way that the younger actor did. No, I, I'm with you on that one. I don't know. He just, he just, he, he was fine. He just wasn't really uh, a draw for me. You know, he, he, he was, uh, he was a suitable kind of filler character. Well, I think that is about it. Thank you so much, Tess, for digging into that. Did you have any final thoughts you wanted to convey on Great Expectations? Honestly, I think we, I think we talked about everything about this I think movie. We, we, we kind of nailed it, I think. I, yeah. I really enjoyed it. I, I mean, I hope that if any listeners who haven't watched it are, are, will go ahead and watch it. Like, it, it exceeded my expectations, actually. And this is one that's kind of beloved everywhere else. Like, it's not really a known commodity here in the States, but over in the UK, this is like a beloved, like, favorite. In Canada, this was a massive, like, number one box office hit, you know? So... I think we got the short end of that, and it hasn't really permeated our culture the way it has in those. But it's absolutely worth checking out. And it's on HBO Max right now. You can watch it for free if you have that service. So definitely check it out. Tessa, thank you so, so much again for being here. It's been a delight having you. Uh, can, can you tell us where we can find your stuff? Yeah, so I am a co-host on the Monkey Off My Backlog podcast. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Monkey Backlog. And I am also a contributor to the Pop Culturist website. Um, you can find them on Twitter at Pop Culturist Hub. And you can find me on Twitter at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. That's where you can find me. Perfect. Well, thank you so much again. I hope hope you don't mind. I'm going to keep bugging you to come on because I've had a lot of fun chatting with you about these. I, so. I hope so. Uh, this was this was really cool. And I think it's a really cool project, too. Well, thank you. Yeah, I think it's going to be a fun one. I'm, I'm already having fun with it. So, yeah, it's going to be a big one. Uh, so tune in next week. Uh, we are, oh, well, I'll give my plugs first, I guess. We are uh, Rogers List pod at gmail.com Rogers List pod on Twitter and Rogers List pod on Instagram. I kept it pretty simple. Uh, and uh, you can also find us on Letterboxd, where you can see us uh, kind of ranking the movies as we go. It's a very loose list because I don't really feel compelled to say one movie on this list is better than like a bunch of others. You get into the weeds on that one a little bit, but it's kind of my general outlines at the time. Um, so, yes, check out all of those and don't forget to come back next week because we are going to be watching a movie that I am looking up right now. I'm in no way vamping because I don't have my notes open. I don't know what anyone's <laughs> talking about. We are watching a movie called Richard the Third. This is a 1995 adaptation of the Shakespeare story. And this would be the second Shakespeare that I've covered on this show so far. Weirdly, weirdly front-loaded on Shakespeare and on uh, literary adaptations. So. I was going to say on British lit in general. Yeah, yeah, which, uh, which is interesting. I'll, I might want to spread some of these out a little bit, but I think it's going to be fun. And actually, coming just on the heels of talking about Chimes at Midnight, it'll be interesting to follow Richard III because it is technically a sequel to that uh, play, even though it's set in Nazi Germany this time around. I'm excited to see it. I know nothing really about this movie other than Ian McKellen and Robert Downey Jr. are in it, and uh, I'm excited. Uh, so 
Be sure to tune in next week for that one. And in the meantime, um, I'm off to London to find my fortune. Yay! <laughs> he says yay in the movie, right? Yay! Sure, sure. That was a that was a British. That's a Dickensian expression, right? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs>